from our perspective, because there's a purely market neutral portfolio that was, you know, very defensive, I think, for most investors, how they would look at it. For us, a dramatic day, either in terms of positive or negative PL, would be, you know, half a percent. Mm. And that 1% for us, as mentioned, was the largest daily loss ever and something that on a historical basis just wasn't, we didn't see coming. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever, stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. My name is Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Investment Research, and I'm here with featured guest, Nicholas Rabiner. Nicholas, are you ready to rock? Let's do it. All right. Let me give a little background. Nicholas is the founder of Factor Research, which provides quantitative solutions for factor investing. And really, that's how we got to know each other. Some of the stuff that you are producing is very, very interesting. Previously, he created Jack Daw Capital, an award-winning quantitative investment manager focused on equity market neutral strategies. Before that, Nicholas worked at Government of Singapore Investment Corporation in London, focused on real estate investments across the capital structure. He started his career working in investment banking at Citigroup in London and New York. Nicholas holds a master's in finance from HHL Leipzig Graduate School of Management, charter holder, and enjoys endurance sports. And I'll let you, Tim, tell you a little bit about that. Nicholas, take a moment and fill in any further tidbits about your life. Uh, sure, happy to do so. And first of all, I think it's worth mentioning that I believe what you're doing is great in the sense of this podcast from a theme perspective. I think there is an unhealthy bias in the investment industry that gets fueled by investors and by the media in terms of focusing on winners in the sense of people making money with real estate, with bonds, with stocks. And unfortunately, that's not a reality. Investing is very much about losing. And I think, you know, you highlighting that with your podcast and allowing people to share their stories, I think is educational. I think it's something that deserves much more attention. So, you know, like I hope this uh, show will become, you know, one of the most popular ones. Thank you very um, much. <laughs> With regards to tidbits, maybe in terms of, you already mentioned a little bit in terms of my work experience, what might be interested, interesting a little bit to share in terms of how I have evolved um, as an investor um, and what actually made me uh, become an investor. And that goes back to a little bit um, high school where my dad convinced me to buy the stock of the company he was working on, which was a Swiss pharmaceutical company. So I bought the shares in that company, uh, nothing much happened for about three months. Uh, I was living in Japan at that point. And so I was simply reading the, the ticker um, on a daily basis um, until one day the stock went up by 50%. And I thought this was fantastic. You know, like you don't have to do a lot of work, uh, at least not physical work. You just watch the share price and suddenly you make 50%. That's kind of what got me interested, uh, unsurprisingly, in terms of becoming an investor. And then over the next few years during high school, which was the same time as the tech bubble, I you know, was trading tech uh, stocks. wasn't very difficult making money, but of course, it also didn't require a lot of uh, work or thoughts. I did miss most of the implosion of the tech bubble simply because I started going off to university, so didn't do a lot of investing or trading during that time. I uh, did keep on reading books and, and educating myself. Also didn't do a lot of investing or trading during my time as an analyst at Citigroup uh, simply because I was doing investment banking working until 2 a.m. each night. And the time when I got a bit more active again was during associate trading uh, at Citi simply because I had time 
And it was an interesting time in financial markets because that was August, July 2008, so the heart of the financial crisis. What it did at that point is you know, mainly thematic trades, uh, things like, for example, shorting Volkswagen, which, as you might recall, uh, briefly became the most expensive stock on earth, uh, went from you know, 100 to 1,000 euros, was totally ungrounded from a valuation perspective, didn't make any sense, effectively bankrupted uh, quite a few people on their way up. And I made money um, in terms of when it increased because of the short, but made money on the way down. And, and it kind of a few similar trades. Mm. Having said that, I realized that this kind of investing, which was a little bit fundamentally based, a little bit discretionary, didn't suit me very well. And then when I moved across to GLC, the government of Singapore, and that's my corporation, my job was to invest in real estate. And real estate in terms of buying buildings or portfolios directly, so real estate private equity, buying and originating real estate debt, also investing in real estate stocks. What I quickly figured out is because it was my job to build the models to come up with the value of a building or the you know, share price for real estate stock, that in real estate, it's all about macro. Now, what I mean with that is that if you model that, that it's all about forecasting in a sense of you know, inflation, interest rates, and GDP growth, which you need to come up with rent for that kind of like real estate asset you're looking for. Now, I didn't believe for one second that I would be particularly good at forecasting these macro variables. Um, I don't think anyone else is particularly good at that. So got a little bit disillusioned with this kind of discretionary fundamental way of investing. And a few, ways, uh, a few years after that, um, BC quit, um, became an entrepreneur, and set up a hedge fund uh, called Jack Capital, which you mentioned earlier. Now, what's interesting to notice that as soon as I set that up, I decided to do exactly the opposite of the way I was educated at City and at GSE. So everything at Jack Capital was purely quantitative in a sense of that we you know, back-tested strategies, that we looked at academic research, and then we just wanted to get comfortable in terms of being able to analyze strategies and just focus on investing more from a scientific perspective. Um, of course, investing is not pure science, you know, in terms of like uh, physics or chemistry, but this kind of like type of investing in terms of evidence base is something that's much more appealing. And that effectively has led me to um, also create factor research um, in the sense of where we focused on not only real estate stocks, but global equities. And of course, a diversity of strategies, you know, that range, you know, from value to momentum and um, also more quantitative strategies. Mm. And that's a little bit in terms of background, what also might uh, help um, your audience in terms of understanding the uh, worst investment ever in terms of where I'm coming from and where I'm currently um, at as of today. Fantastic. He hasn't mentioned, but he's run a uh, ultra marathon 100 kilometer race uh, once or more than once. Um, I only did it uh, once and I was quite <laughs> happy not doing it more than uh, that. And it was an interesting experience. I've always been you know, doing sports, always enjoyed running, doing marathons. And of course, at some point when you see a fine, you know, like, hey, what's, you know, like uh, more than a marathon and, you know, 100Ks, two and a half marathons. It was an interesting experience. What I realized is that it's actually not that difficult from a physical perspective. You know, most people, even, you know, like the average guy on the street can run a marathon like right now if he has to and you can see that if you look at you know like how people you know the distances people made from syria uh, migrating to europe right i mean they've been walking um hundreds of kilometers per day so actually running something like that is not very difficult from a physical perspective which surprises most people it's from a mental perspective simply because if you're like you know you ran 30 kilometers and you know you have to run another 70 that is utterly depressing <laughs> <laughs> it does 
doesn't matter if you know like you have a great podcast at some point you're just gonna get a little bit you know, challenged by that but it's been very educational for me so i was very very happy to do that and the good thing is it gives you confidence in the sense that you know if you can run 100 kilometers you also know you can run 200 kilometers or all sorts of other stuffs and mm. you know being an investor of course that persistence in terms of surviving something as unpleasant as then um, is very often helpful because as mentioned you know and this is the theme of what we're discussing you also lose money in the investment world and often it requires you to actually stick to something and go through with it yep that's fantastic in fact i was just thinking like overcoming your demons overcoming your emotions is part of what you know learning that they're there and you know uh, certainly with investing they're always exactly. there now it's time to share your worst investment ever. And since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about your circumstances that were leading up to the story. Uh, sure, happy to do so. So um, the worst investment loss in my career was when I was managing the Jector Real Estate Fund, which was the hedge fund of Jector Capital. The strategy we were running was effectively a completely long, short market neutral fund that had a very low return and very low risk profile. The core strategy was statistical arbitrage, but we also did have some factor investing portfolios. Now, one of those factor investing portfolios was a value one, where we effectively had cheap stocks in the long portfolio and expensive stocks in the short portfolio. We were only trading real estate um, stocks, so the way to measure how cheap or expensive a real estate stock is, is for example, by looking at things like premium discount to NAV, FFO yield or EBITDA yield. Uh, EBITDA yield is just the inverse of the EBITDA multiple. If you look at that portfolio, that was one in the US, where on the short side, we had stocks trading at 3% EBITDA yields. Uh, was mainly like shopping center, um, real estate stocks, while on the long side, it was more diverse. Two stocks in the long portfolio were prison REITs, effectively companies um, managing prisons on behalf of various departments of the US government. Those two companies are the GEO Group, where the ticker is GEO, um, and the other one was um, CoreCivic, where the ticker is CXW. Um, both of them have about close to 200,000 bits, where they manage effectively like, you know, like space for you know, managing prisoners. Now, in August 2016, both of those stocks dropped about 35 to 40% in a day. Now, given that we were trading exclusively real estate stocks, anything dropping more than 5 to 10% was unheard of, simply because it's asset-backed business we're talking about. Um, you know, unless you have a major earthquake or something like an asteroid strike, things don't drop that much. Um, and even in the case of a major earthquake, because we looked at that specifically for you know, like real estate companies being based in you know, like, uh, San Francisco, because at some point you're going to have a larger earthquake there, you usually have building insurance. So we didn't quite understand what was happening, um, why those stocks were uh, dropping that much. Um, initially, we thought it was an issue in the data feed. Um, so of course, we looked at uh, you know, like some other data sources and we're hoping that um, this was wrong and that we didn't lose that much money on those two stocks. But unfortunately, it was quite. So what happened is um, one of the large clients of those two prison reads was the Department of Justice, um, the DOJ. And they effectively wrote a letter to the management of those two companies that they might not prolong the contracts in terms of managing prisoners after they expire. That effectively has led to investors reacting quite aggressively um, and to those two stocks dropping by that much, which you know, from, un, from our perspective was unbelievable. Now, we were quite diversified. So on a fund level, it was actually only a loss of about 1%. 
Now, that might not be very large from an equity market perspective because the S&P 500 you know, goes up or down by a percent easily in a day. But for our fund, that was the worst daily loss ever. For us, something like 40, 50 basis points on a daily basis was dramatic. Losing 1% in a day is something you know, like, uh, well, effectively our worst nightmare. What's quite interesting is a little bit thinking about what we did next. So we had that big loss, but naturally also we're thinking, is this justified? Does this make sense? And the other part of our portfolio next to the value portfolio was statistical arbitrage, which is effectively mean aversion. So of course we were thinking, because it was purely systematic, our approach, does this make those stocks interesting from a mean aversion perspective? Uh, simply because you know they dropped much. It was a little bit unrealistic from a fundamental perspective that anything in the short term should happen to those companies from a cash flow perspective. So if we look at those two companies, the Department of Justice, which effectively was threatening to take away those contracts from those two companies, was only about 10% from a revenue perspective. Even if, as you know, the DOJ, you do want to take prisoners out of private prisons and want to put them in the public prisons, that's not something as easy to do. Um, and there's a variety of reasons. One is, for example, you can't just move prisoners around. They have local court hearings, so need to be in, a, in the same you know, like, uh, region. Plus, the public prisons um, have no capacity. You cannot build prisons easily, um, and you can buy them. So from our perspective, purely from a fundamental perspective, which is not what we're necessarily doing from a strategy perspective, but it was nice to complement our view that there was a bit of overreaction. So the next day, we bought more of those stocks, increased our positions in a different uh, strategy, of course, um, and they mean averted. Having said that, for the next few months, those two stocks didn't do much until Donald Trump won the election. And uh, because there was actually the perception that Trump would be quite positive for the prison population of the US versus the other contender, which was Hillary Clinton, was going to be negative. And so that was a little bit our worst loss ever, which might not sound a lot on a fund level, but from a stock perspective, in terms of also our framework, in terms of what we expected, it was dramatic. And let me get let me try to get a couple of things as clear as possible. Um, the first thing is that you said that the revenue from the Department of Justice was about 10% of revenue. Is that what you said? Yeah, correct. And those contracts would expire over a five-year basis. So there wasn't any really short-term risk in terms of those companies, you know, like having less uh, revenue, um, you know, on the next quarter or so. Okay. The other thing is when you said, when you took the position in the, in the statistical arbitrage with them, did the stocks then move in the direction that you had expected? In other words, it bounced back? Yeah, correct. So next next day, because I think rationality set in, um, because people were doing the same kind of calculations that we did. That you know, like this isn't um, actually justified in terms of you know stocks. Those two stocks going down by thirty to forty percent because nothing practically happens that much on a you know like short term basis. And then the next day, actually, those two stocks did mean worth, so they did increase their price again. Not of course as much as they dropped the previous day, but we did recover some of our losses. And you still held the stocks in the in the strategy that you originally held them in, and so they bounced back, or did you exit that? No, uh, because there was no reason. What we do yep. is purely systematic. So that was a systematic value portfolio. And of course, they became cheaper, so even more attractive from a systematic perspective. So when you think about this, when we rebalanced, which we did on a regular basis, then of course, you would have increased your proportion again, simply because, you know, like, if you have like an equal weight allocation, you do want to make sure that you know like you have the same allocation to each stock. Um, we just kept holding them because our approach was purely systematic. It was just that we had other strategies where they suddenly also became interesting from a trading perspective. And um, just for the audience, they may think, well, wait a minute, isn't 100% of their revenue coming from the Department of Justice or is it local? Um, 
No, there's um, actually, it's quite diverse in terms of, you know, like how those companies make uh, money. There's, for example, also the state in the US, uh, for example, state of California. Right. There's the Bureau of Prisons. There's like Immigration Customs. And there's also the Marshal Service. It's actually quite diverse. And so that what made it quite interesting. It was even more interesting that other parts of the Department of Justice actually mentioned that they were quite happy with those prison beats managing them. And if you look at all prisons in the US, they get ranked in the sense of, you know, the quality of, I guess, care. And most of those private operators actually had fairly high rankings. So there was a lot of confusion going on. Part of that might be connected with the political campaigns at that point, because Hillary Clinton issued publicly that she was for reducing the population in general, like of prisoners in the U.S. And on a personal level, I fully agree that the U.S. has, you know, like an un- unhealthy proportion of the population in prison. I think it's the highest one, you know, out of all countries. So that should be reduced. But so there was a lot of, you know, discussion, a lot of vagueness happening at that point that kind of came together and that, you know, letter effectively from the DOJ um, that hit those managements of those two companies. Right. And I think that that's uh, one of the things, one of the lessons that I would take away from that is the concept that sometimes uh, logic isn't what happens in the stock market. Sometimes people overreact or they may not think fully and completely that only 10% would potentially be at risk. And therefore, they may think, oh my God, this is terrible. And then eventually when they read the news and they get into more detail, things start to bounce back. So that would be the first thing. Would, would that correct to think of it that way? Or? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I mean, that, that, okay. that's a great example of overaction. Yep. Okay. And then, so from this position, um, you kind of you were able to recover from it. But then, uh, what happened was, as you mentioned, that Trump came in, and now you've clarified in saying that the the that the market's perception of Trump is that he put more people in prison. Uh, uh, tough, <laughs> tough on crime, basically. <laughs> exactly. And those two stocks on election day, or when it became clear that Trump was going to be the next president of the United States, they went up by somewhere between 40 and 50%. From this perspective, what you're saying now, well, also you talked about the portfolio being down by about 1%. Um, can you just give us an idea about what your portfolio changes would normally be? I, I, you were mentioning sure. that this is very, oh. very strange yeah. to have that. Yeah, correct. So from our perspective, because there's a purely market neutral portfolio that was, you know, very defensive, I think, for most investors, how they would look at it. For us, a dramatic day, either in terms of positive or negative PL, would be, you know, half a percent. Mm. And that one percent for us, as mentioned, was the largest daily loss ever, and something that on a historical basis just wasn't, we didn't see coming um, and we didn't expect. So although it might be, you know, little from an um, equity perspective for the strategy we're, we're running, it was actually quite significant. It would be interesting to hear your learning. I mean, one of the things that, that sometimes a, stri- a quantitative strategy will have in place is some sort of stop loss. But if you had that in place, you could have actually um, been hurt even more because you may have executed a stop loss when the stock was down and then it bounced back up and you wouldn't have been exposed to that recovery. I'm just curious, what did you learn from this experience? Yeah. So in general, I think, you know, what we were doing was, you know, reasonable and sensible. We knew from a strategy perspective in terms of, you know, like what a value portfolio is, how, you know, why it should exist in the portfolio, what's driving it. We also quite, quite sensible in terms of how much we allocate per stock. So we only allocated about 1.5% um, of our um, equity per stock, which is, you know, relatively sensible. Um, what we learned from it is quite simple, expect the unexpected. Because from our real estate perspective, because this is, you know, asset-backed businesses, you know, these prisons 
prisons are buildings with land and you know, people inside. Um, we just would have never expected those to drop that much because just it hasn't happened from a historical perspective. So I guess the learning curve is that no matter how defensive and what you can expect, sometimes you do get punched in the face. Now let's look at you know what, what you learned from this story and what you continue to learn as you've been investing over the years. What one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate or, you know, in other words, bring it all down to one action? So maybe not directly related to that example, but from a broader perspective, I would urge most people to dramatically reduce their portfolios from a complexity perspective, especially on the retail side. I think most people shouldn't try to beat the market because it's just extremely hard, even for institutional asset managers, which do this on a daily basis, but all the time. I think in terms of, you know, most people are perfectly fine with a super simple ETF portfolio that is dirt cheap, gives them exposure to equity, bonds, maybe something for the education and just structure like that. Focus on other things that are more important in life in terms of, you know, like work or, you know, family and things like that. And just avoid the complexity because complexity on the investment side is often the enemy. Fantastic. And it reminds me of something I talked about in, in one of my books on how to build your wealth investing in the stock market for beginners. And, you know, one of the questions that I asked in kind of a, a Q&A in that book is, how much time do you have in a day? And what people don't realize is that, you know, there's professionals out there that are working 24-7 trying to just get a tiny bit of performance in the market. And if you, if, if the average person out there thinks, hey, I'm going to spend three hours or five hours a week and I'm going to do really well. Yeah, it's probably not likely. <laughs> so yeah, I do correct. like. I do like the idea of keeping it simple. And I also, you're going to hear in just a moment when I wrap up the show that I talk about three things, create, grow, and protect our wealth. And I think it's important to get the message out to the market and to the, the listeners that we generally create wealth from business. If you go into the stock market thinking you're going to create your wealth, you're probably going to lose. It's a little bit like going into a casino and thinking, this is where I'm going to create my wealth from. Well, yeah, unlikely. However, the stock market is good for growing your wealth. And I think today you're also hearing about how to protect your wealth. And I think for investors out there, some of the academic research I did showed that in Asia, you need about 10 stocks to diversify away most of the systemic risk, uh, the company-specific risk. You've also heard from Nicholas about a 1.5% position in a stock. If you do end up holding a portfolio of stocks, diversification of that portfolio to 15, 20, 25, 30 stocks is quite possible. Of course, by the time you get to 30 stocks, you're pretty much going to have the same behavior as an ETF. So why not keep your life simple, like Nicholas says, and build a long-term portfolio out of an ETF? Oh, that's perfect. That's great. Thanks for having yeah. me. Yeah. Well, all right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. To find more stories like this, previous episodes, and resources to help you reduce your risk, visit myworstinvestmentever.com. As we wrap up, Nicholas, thanks for coming on the show. I know it's painful talking about our losers, but our listeners are learning to win as a result. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our wealth. Fellow risk takers, I'll see you on the upside.